The sermon for today is from Genesis 27, verse 1, all the way through 28, verse 5, and we will not have um, a New Testament reading, uh, only because the sermon text is so long. So Genesis 27, verse 1 through 28, verse 5. Let's give ourselves now to the reading of God's most holy word. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau his older son and said to him, My son, and he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old, I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me a delicious meal such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it back, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau, bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him, and bring a curse upon myself, and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice, and go bring them to me. So he went and took them, and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food, such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands, and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread, which she had prepared, into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went in to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you have told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to him, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near, that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Esau, his father, who felt him, and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him, because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it near to me, that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, 
when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac his father, Esau his brother came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. His father said to him, Who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me, and I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing from me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise free to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him. And directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings, that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. So far the reading of God's holy word. We pray that the Lord would bless the preaching of it this morning, and that he would help us to apply this text to our lives. I want to begin by drawing your attention to something that I have pointed out before in this study of the stories of Abraham and Isaac, the fathers of Israel and of our faith. 
Notice that when Moses wrote this history of the Israelite nation, he highlighted not only the good and noble qualities of Israel's patriarchs, but to the contrary, he highlighted their faults and their failings even more so. And I think this should strike us as unusual. This is not typically how histories are written. Uh, Certainly, this is not how histories are written if the objective is to foster a kind of national, religious, or ethnic pride amongst the people. If the objective were to foster this kind of pride, the author would highlight the strengths and successes of the forefathers. As you know, histories are often written much in the same way that people post to Facebook and Instagram. Everything looks rosy on Instagram, doesn't it? I don't see very many selfies of people who have just gotten out of bed uh, posted on Instagram, do you? Um, Indeed, uh, we tend to draw attention to the very best aspects of our lives, and we conceal our blemishes. That is our natural way. So clearly the objective of the book of Genesis is not to foster pride within Israel concerning the patriarchs. Instead, the narrative makes it clear that these were men of faith who were flawed and prone to failure. The objective of Genesis, therefore, is to give glory to God and to promote faith in the covenant Lord, for He is the one who is faithful. He is the one who is holy and strong. He fulfills His promises despite our sin. And so our hope must not be set in man, therefore, but in God who is faithful. And neither should we boast in man, but only in the Lord. Jeremiah 9, 23-24 comes to mind. There we read these words, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So I want you to see, brothers and sisters, that the Holy Scriptures... From the very beginning, establish this proper perspective. God is God. He's the creator of heaven and earth. He's the sustainer of all things. He is our redeemer. And we are mere men. We are fallen and sinful men. Whatever good that we have, therefore, is by the mercy and grace of our loving Lord. Certainly our redemption is only by His grace. And so we must set all of our hope and trust in Him. Our boast is to be in Him and in Him alone. This story concerning the family of Isaac is a very sad story, really, when you stop to reflect upon it. Here we see clearly that the family of Isaac, Abraham's son of promise, was dysfunctional and divided. It's actually a bit surprising to learn of this. If if you're following along with the narrative as it progresses, uh, there was so much hype concerning the birth of Isaac, wasn't there? And the promises that were made concerning him, we were really built up, I think, to expect great things from Isaac. He was the chosen one, remember. And so too, Rebecca seemed very impressive at the start. She was that hardworking girl who was hospitable. She was beautiful inside and out. She was, in fact, portrayed as a female version of Abraham, one who was willing to leave her father and mother to a country that she did not know. She walked by faith and not by sight. 
And so hopes were high, therefore, concerning both Isaac and Rebekah. But, but here we see a different side of things. In this narrative, Isaac and Rebekah are divided and they are deceptive towards one another. And so too were their sons. Our approach today will be to consider each of the characters in this story. Isaac and Rebekah, Esau and Jacob. And we wish to understand where they went wrong. And as we do, we will be warned against going down the same path. And at the same time, we will be comforted as we are reminded of the amazing grace of our loving Lord. How astonishing it is to think that the Lord determined to use sinners such as these. More than that, He set some of them apart as His own, uh, despite their flaws. And so, brothers and sisters, I wish to say this from the outset. God's grace is truly amazing. It is astonishing to think that He would set His love upon sinners such as these and, and also sinners such as you and me. It is clear in this narrative uh, that both Rebekah and Jacob acted deceptively. That's obvious, isn't it? Uh, it's really almost unbelievable to think of how deceptive Rebekah and Jacob were as they tricked their ailing father to pronounce the blessing upon Jacob instead of Esau. We'll come to address their shameful deception of Isaac in a moment. But I want to suggest to you that this messy situation actually originated with Isaac, who failed to leave his covenant, lead his covenant family in the ways of the Lord. Isaac was deceived in the end, but in fact, much of the blame lands at his feet. Commentators seem to agree that a careful analysis of the narrative of Genesis reveals that Isaac was a passive, non-confrontational man. That was his temperament. And truly it is good and virtuous to be a gentleman. Wouldn't you agree with that? Paul urges this in Colossians 3.12-14 when he says to all Christians, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is the command of Holy Scripture applied both to men and women. Men and women who are growing in godliness will manifest these qualities. They will be compassionate, kind, humble, meek, and patient, just as our Lord was. And so Christian men should be gentle men. But I'm afraid that some think that to be compassionate, kind, humble, meek, and patient also means that we are to be passive and also non-confrontational at all times. And friends, it should not be difficult to see that though our Lord was perfectly compassionate, kind, humble, meek, and patient, He certainly was not passive and non-confrontational. Just think about the gospel story and what we know of Jesus the Christ. Perfectly meek and mild, but also willing to, to stand for truth and to confront evil where it was present. And so, do not conflate the two things. A godly person, male or female, ought to possess those humble and meek qualities, but they should also have the courage to do what is right and to confront wrongdoing wherever it is present. It is very easy to be harsh and judgmental. Perhaps you have experienced this yourself. 
One only has to give in to his or her sinful passions to do that. And it is easy to be passive. Again, one only has to give in to his or her desire for personal comfort to do that. I think that is what passive people really do. They give in to their desire to not be bothered by the problem. They just want to lay low. It's easy to be passive. And again, we see that in both instances, the sin of harshness and the sin of passivity it's rooted in a desire for us to, to have our passions, um, our appetites uh, fed. But what we see here in the Holy Scriptures is that uh, we are to be meek and mild and at the same time bold and courageous and appropriately confrontational just as our Lord was. And both of these things require self-control. Both of these things involve the denial of self and it seems that Isaac was meek and mild, but it also seems that this quality of his was accompanied by a propensity towards passive, non-confrontational negligence in life. Uh, Consider these observations uh, that I think point in this direction. Did you notice the emphasis in the previous passage and also at the end of this one upon Esau's marriage to Hittite women who made life miserable for Isaac and Rebekah. The previous passage makes mention of that, and so to the passage that we are considering today, it it concludes with this emphasis upon uh, the Hittite women who made life miserable for Isaac and Rebekah. Now, granted, Esau was his own person. Perhaps he rebelled against the wishes of his parents in this regard. But Esau's choice in marriage should be contrasted with the insistence of Abraham that Isaac take a wife, not from amongst the people of the land, but from his own clan. Do you remember that narrative where Abraham, Isaac's father, as he was approaching the end of his life, he called out to his servant and said, do not allow Isaac to take a wife from amongst these pagan, ungodly people, but send him back to the land from which we came and bring a wife from there to him. And we remember that whole story of the servant going out in obedience to Abraham and returning with Rebekah. The question is, why didn't Isaac do the same for his sons? Why did he neglect to follow the pattern established by his father? We, didn't, we don't have all the answers, of course, in this text, but it seems clear that Isaac was far less concerned to maintain purity within the covenant family when compared to the pattern established by his father Abraham. Abraham was on top of it, wasn't he? But here we see that Esau took two wives from amongst the Hittites, from amongst the Canaanites. And it was evidently uh, permitted, or at least Isaac was willing to uh, be passive in in, in this regard. Two, notice that Isaac is portrayed in this narrative as being a man driven by his appetite and his love for pleasure, just like his son Esau. Did you notice how much food was mentioned in this passage? It's mentioned over and over again. Isaac is portrayed as one who really loves his food. In particular, he loves the food that Esau prepared from the game that he hunted in the field. In fact, we were told way back in Genesis 25 that Isaac loved Esau because... He ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. I don't want you to misunderstand me here. There is nothing wrong with enjoying food with thanksgiving to the glory of God. 
But what I am saying is that as we consider the narrative of Genesis in its entirety, I think we are to connect Esau, Isaac's love for food with Esau's love for food. Remember that earlier in the narrative, Esau sold his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of red lentil stew. Do you remember that? He came in from the field so hungry, he was willing to sell his birthright just for a bowl of soup. And in that moment, Esau didn't really care about his birthright. He didn't really care about being the heir of the promises of God given to Abraham and Isaac. He just wanted to be comforted in the moment. That was his character. Esau was a man driven by his appetites. And I believe that we are to see a connection between Esau and Isaac in this regard. Isaac, it seems, was like Esau. He was more concerned with his personal comfort than with his faithfulness to the Word of God. Three, though it might be a little difficult for the modern reader to see, something is not right from the start of this narrative. Isaac was getting older. His health was clearly failing. And because he did not know when he would die, he acted according to the custom of the day, and he set out to pronounce blessings upon his offspring. And yes, last words like these are always very important, But they were especially important in the case of the family of Isaac, given the promises of God that were given to them. Isaac had a a special responsibility, I think, to to pass the promises of God made to Abraham that were entrusted to him on to the next generation. Now, notice that I said that Isaac acted according to the custom of the day, but this is really only half true. In fact, he broke with custom in a very significant way. Instead of gathering the whole family, including all of his sons, what did Isaac do? He called only one of his sons, Esau, to himself. And I want you to compare this with what Jacob would do when he knew that his death was drawing near. You have to think ahead in the book of Genesis, but I'll read just verse 1 of chapter 49. There we learn that Jacob called his sons, in the plural, and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell what shall happen to you in days to come. And if you're aware of that story, all of Jacob's sons came and he pronounced blessings upon all of them. Some of them might be regarded as curses, in fact, Uh, So there is something strange about what Isaac is doing from the start. It really doesn't pass the smell test. Truth be told, Rebecca and Jacob were not the only ones of acting deceptively here, as we will see. So what exactly was Isaac up to? That is the question. Well, the issue becomes clear when we remember the oracle of God that was given to Rebecca years earlier. When the twins were still at war within her womb, the Lord said to Rebekah, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. This was the word of the Lord given to Rebekah concerning his election of the younger over the older as it pertained to the promises of God. Now, It is hard to know exactly what was going on within Isaac's mind and heart, but when all things are considered, it becomes clear that he was preparing to act contrary to the revealed word of God by blessing Esau as if he were the one who was blessed of the Lord. Without a doubt, Rebekah informed Isaac of this oracle from God concerning the twins. He knew what the word of God was, that the younger would in fact rule over the the older 
uh, in reverse to the custom of the day. But clearly, Isaac here is, for whatever reason, not willing to follow through with that when it came time to bless his son. So he calls not everyone together, the whole family, so that this might be done in the open, but he calls just Esau so that he might do this thing sort of in secret. There is deception here, I think. I want you to listen carefully to the blessing that Isaac prepared for Esau. Now, it was not pronounced upon Esau because of the deception of Rebekah and Jacob, but this is the blessing that Isaac prepared to pronounce upon Esau, his oldest son. Now, as you know, again, things went differently, but listen to verse 28. We hear Isaac say, May God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. This was the blessing that Isaac was bent on pronouncing upon Esau and not Jacob. Two things must be observed One, the blessing that Isaac had prepared for Esau was rooted in the promise that God had made to Abraham. To Abraham it was said, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And so you hear the same language being used in the blessing that Isaac had prepared for Esau. And so understand, therefore, that Isaac was determined to pass the promises made to Abraham on to his eldest son, Esau. And two, notice that this blessing also addresses the question of who will rule over who. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. That that language should catch our attention. Who was the favorite son of Rebekah? Jacob was. And so here Isaac is preparing to say to Esau, may it be this way. May your mother's sons, including Jacob, bow down before you. May you rule over them. But God had said that it would be the opposite way. God had revealed that to Rebekah even when the twins were in uh, the womb. When Isaac prepared to pronounce this blessing upon Esau instead of Jacob, it is clear that he was acting in direct contradiction to the revealed word of God. Again, God spoke to Rebekah, revealing that the older would serve the younger, but Isaac determined to say that the younger would serve the older. And so it is no wonder that he was sneaking around, and that he planned to exclude the involvement of Rebekah and Jacob in the pronouncement of this blessing. Do you see what's going on here? It's just a big mess, actually. It's a big mess, and I think it all starts with Isaac and with his determination to do what he wanted to do. Again, it is hard to know what exactly was going on in Isaac's mind and heart that would lead him to take such a course of action. Was Esau simply his favorite? Maybe that was it. Did Esau, uh, did Isaac rather, distrust Rebekah's testimony concerning the the word of God that was given to her while the twins were in her womb? The Lord spoke to Rebekah. Maybe Isaac distrusted that word. Or did Isaac simply lack the courage to follow through on doing what was countercultural in obedience to the word of God. Blessing Jacob as the one with the birthright and the one to receive the promises would have required great courage and faith. It would have been a very bold move for Isaac to take. And we may never know exactly what was going on in his head. But what is clear is that Isaac was out of step 
with what God had revealed. And his sneakiness really does prove that he knew what he was doing. Brothers and sisters, I think there is a lot that we can learn from Isaac's shortcomings. In particular, I am reminded of the fact that there are sins of commission, but there are also sins of omission. You know what sins of commission are, don't you? They are the sins that we commit in violation of the law of God. We sin a sin of commission when we do something that the, God, that the law of God forbids. Don't do this, the law of God says. When we do it, we sin a sin of commission. We commit a sin. But sins of omission are a little bit different. We sin a sin of omission when we fail to do that which God has required of us. It's still a sin. It's just approached from a different angle. We sin a sin of commission when we tell a lie, but we sin a sin of omission when we fail to tell the truth, you see. Both are violations of God's law. And it seems to me that sins of omission can be a little harder to detect. Brothers and sisters, have you loved your neighbor as you ought, I might ask? Fathers, are you raising your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Husbands, are you loving your wives as Christ has loved the church? Wives, are you honoring your husband as the church does Christ? Children, are you respecting your parents? Note that every one of these questions that I have put before you have to do with what we ought to do. But we violate God's law if we fail to do this. It might be that children are not particularly rude to their parents, but are they honoring? That is the question. Are you doing what God's law has required? And it may be that a husband is not abusive towards his wife, which is of course good, but I am here asking the question, are you loving your wife as Christ has loved the church? Are you active in the things that God has commanded? And again, wives may not be particularly dishonoring towards their husbands, but are you honoring your husband as the church does Christ? We must beware of sins of omission. When we think of sin, we often think of sins of commission. Uh, we repent of things that we have thought or said or done. We strive to not do that which is forbidden in God's law, and all of that is good. But I would exhort you to also be mindful of sins of omission, to ask the Lord to reveal to you the ways in which you are failing to do that which God has required seems to me that Isaac's flaw was that he was passive and negligent. He was inactive. And so may we learn from his failings and take a different path, seeking always to do that which is pleasing to the Lord. We ask our children the question, what is sin? It's a pretty important question, isn't it? What is sin? And how have we instructed them to answer? I hope that we have instructed them to answer in this way, saying, Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. That's a very good definition of sin. And I wonder, did you hear it? Did you hear the emphasis both upon sins of omission and commission in this definition of sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto. We sin when we fail to live up to what God has called us to do or transgression of we also sin when we do that which God's that, that which God's law has forbidden it is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God 
When we come before the Lord in our daily prayers, we should ask Him to reveal to us all of the ways that we are falling short of His law. We ought to say, Lord, is there anything that I am doing that is sinful in your sight? And we should also say, Lord, is there anything that I am failing to do which you have asked of me? And perhaps the Lord will speak to you by his word and the promptings of the Holy Spirit saying, Yes, child, you have failed in this regard. You have refused to forgive that one who has sinned against you. That's a sin of omission, is it not? God's word says, forgive, and you will not forgive. You have sinned in that way. Or you have failed to lovingly exhort that brother or sister in Christ who is living in sin. Or you have failed to give unto me of your tithes and offerings. Or you have been negligent when it comes to leading your family in the ways of the Lord, as Isaac was. The sermon is very imbalanced. I'm going to admit it at this point. I've taken almost all of my time to talk about Isaac. What I have to say about Rebecca, Esau, and Jacob will have to be very brief. I actually think that it works, though, uh, for the gist of the story has already been communicated in our consideration of Isaac. But let's move on to Rebecca now. What shall we say about her? Well, I think we must admit that though Rebecca was right, to want the blessing to fall upon Jacob. Her method in bringing it about was all wrong. Do you see it? When it came down to it, she was right to want Jacob to be blessed. She knew that that was the right course of action, given what the word, the, the word of the Lord that was spoken to her all those years before. But Rebecca was deceptive. She was dishonoring. And she was manipulative towards her husband. She should have honored him despite his faults and failures, and she should have trusted that the Lord would sort it out in the end. That should have been her approach. You've probably heard the expression that two wrongs don't make a right, haven't you? There's a lot of truth to that. And I've seen Christians stumble badly in this regard. When they are mistreated, they might reason within themselves that they are justified to treat the person badly in return. But didn't Christ say, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you? And remember Peter's words to Christian wives. This fits the context of the passage we are considering today. He said, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. A little bit later, Peter says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. I think it is worth noting that Sarah is the one who is put forth as a model by Peter in this regard. Did you catch that? It's not Rebecca. Both women were married to flawed men. But Sarah excelled in honoring her husband despite his failures. And notice that she was able to do so because she trusted in the Lord. The text says that she hoped in God and therefore did not fear anything that is frightening. Rebecca fell short in this. Again, it was right for her to want this blessing for Jacob. She knew that that was the will of the Lord. 
She was correct to think that Isaac was taking the wrong course, but her solution was wrong-headed. She should have trusted in the Lord. She should have put her fears away. She should have honored her husband in obedience to the Word of God. Instead, she was deceptive. She decided to get the appropriate blessing for Jacob through trickery. And it was a bold plan, wasn't it? If you were to go back and read her plan, this is risky what you are doing. I'm surprised it worked, to be quite honest with you. This was a bold plan. But the plan was dishonoring towards her husband. She she took advantage of him in his old age. Clearly, Isaac was very frail. Rebecca knew that the vitality of his senses were greatly diminished. He could hardly see. His sense of touch must have also been impaired for those goatskins to have worked in convincing Isaac that it was really Esau. So too his hearing, and probably even his sense of taste, Rebecca knew that she would be able to substitute goat for venison and to get away with it. And this is to a man who loved his food, who knew what venison tasted like. It's really a sad scene, isn't it, to see Rebecca, this wife of Isaac, take advantage of her husband's frailty in this way. In the story, we also learn that she was quite manipulative. Even after the deception was discovered and Esau burned with anger, Rebekah manipulated Isaac to send Jacob away. She spoke to Isaac, saying in verse 46, you could almost hear her whining, can't you? You could almost just sense the drama. I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Well, I mean, we understand that those Hittite women did make life miserable for Isaac and Jacob, but I see manipulation here. I say yuck to this. I think she's overly dramatic. She refused to address the real issue. What was the real issue? Esau wants to kill Jacob. We should probably send him away. She doesn't deal with that, but instead she pushes Isaac around to get her way. She uses emotion to get him to do what she wants him to do. I've come into contact with some very manipulative people during my time in the ministry, brothers and sisters. They're difficult people to deal with. And I think at the core of the manipulative person is this characteristic. They refuse to deal with the real issue, whatever it may be. But instead, they exaggerate, they tell half-truths, they lie and deceive in order to get what they want. What they lack is honesty and directness. And I would say that we must learn to be honest and direct in our communication with one another, brothers and sisters. As husbands and wives, as friends, as members of this congregation, we must learn to speak directly to one another, to get to the heart of an issue, instead of taking this manipulative tactic. Let us put away all of our manipulative tactics, no matter if they be passive or aggressive. Our supreme goal in life must not be to get what we want, but to do what God wants, and to love our neighbor. Notice that Rebecca really feared losing her sons. She says so in verse 45 when she spoke to Jacob saying, Why should I be bereft of both of you in one day? She was afraid of losing both of them. Ironically, she ended up getting what she feared most. She lost both of her sons, didn't she? If you know the story, you know that she did. Not to death, but to terrible division. 
Her relationship with Esau was certainly greatly damaged by this episode here. And Jacob would be sent away to preserve his life, but not for a short time as she assumed. He would be gone for many, many years. It may be that Rebecca was gone before he came back. I, I don't know. I'd have to check the narrative more closely here. But I think the application is this, brothers and sisters. Sin, be it sins of commission or omission, they make a real mess of things in life. This is true of both types of sin, and, and though it is true that we don't know how how much, uh, though it is true that we don't know much about Isaac and Rebecca's relationship, one does get the sense that it was a neglected relationship. They were divided. They loved their children, but maybe to the neglect of one another. And to the married couples, I do say this, pursue intimacy with your spouse. Make the marriage relationship the most important of all human relationships to you. There is no other human relationship as close as the one shared by husband and wife, for the two become one flesh till death do them part. I think we learned that from this very sad story concerning the division within Isaac and Rebekah's home. I now have very little time to say anything at all about Esau and Jacob. I'll be content to say this about Esau. He again is proven to be a man driven by his passions. Notice how giddy he is to receive the blessing from his dying father. Commentators have noted that it seems that he's a little too excited about the blessing when he probably should be grieving his father's poor condition. Kind of disrespectful, I think, towards his father. Notice also the way that he responds after he discovers that the blessing was stolen from him. Verse 34, as soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, my father. Isaac didn't have a blessing for him, but he said instead, By your sword you shall live, and your, you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. That is Genesis 27.40. It is interesting that these words would prove true in the history of the Edomite peoples who would descend from Esau. They would be in perpetual conflict with Israel, who would come from Jacob. They would be under Israel's yoke mainly, but when the time would come for Israel to go into captivity, the Edomites would break Jacob's yoke from their neck and they would help to overthrow them. So these words came true as history unfolded. But lastly, notice that Esau burned with the passion of hatred towards his brother. He was a man of passion. Verse 41, Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. Rebekah knew of it. She knew that that is how Esau was comforting himself to plan to kill Jacob. In this regard, he is sort of a, a re, uh, don't take this the wrong way, reincarnation of Cain who rose up to kill Abel. Lastly, let us recognize that Jacob is again proven to be a deceptive heel snatcher. This is his character. Notice that Jacob went along with his mother's manipulative plan to deceive his father. He did express some hesitation, remember. But why did he express it? Why was he hesitant to go along with her plan? Did he stand up and say, no, this is wrong, mom? No, he was only afraid of what would happen to him if he were found out. Verse 11 Jacob said to Rebekah's mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am smooth. Perhaps my father will feel me, and he shall seem, I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself, and not a blessing. And then his mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. 
Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. And he went along with the plan. He continued with this pattern of of deception that has already characterized his life even from the start. He was a deceptive heel snatcher from the start, and he still is as of the conclusion of this narrative. And so what a mess. So much division and dysfunction. And And yet what do we see? We see that Jacob was indeed blessed of the Lord. We see that all of this dysfunction did not thwart the plans and purposes of God. The plans and purposes of God continued on. Notice that in 28.1, Isaac does bless Jacob again, a second time. It's almost as if his head is on straight now. It's almost as if this whole messy situation somehow got his attention. He seems to, by this point, have resigned himself to the word of God spoken to Rebekah concerning the older serving the younger. For here, he clearly gives the promises made to Abraham to Jacob. And this was right that he did so. He finally does it. He says, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Paran, Aram, uh, Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. And listen, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May He give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Now Isaac gets it. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Badan Aram, to Laban the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. And so clearly the writer to the Hebrews had the end of the story in mind when he emphasized the faith of Isaac in that great chapter that is sometimes called the Hall of Faith. He did say, the writer to the Hebrews did, by faith Isaac invoked future blessing on Jacob and Esau. So it's a mess. Yes, it's a big mess. But still we see that Isaac did have faith. He understood that there was power to the blessings that he pronounced upon his sons, that they would bring about God's purposes ultimately. It took him a while to get there, but eventually he got it right. The blessing that Isaac pronounced, though misguided and misdirected at first, were uttered in faith, knowing that God would fulfill the promises made to Abraham. And in the end, Isaac got it right. He set the promises made to Abraham down upon Isaac, and Isaac set them down upon Jacob, according to the word of God. Brothers and sisters, we conclude with these words, Though our sin and rebellion might bring upon us all manner of discomfort, one thing it cannot do is thwart the purposes of God. For the Lord is God and there is none like Him, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Indeed, if we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. 2 Timothy 2.13 Let us bow for prayer. Father, we thank You for this narrative. It is a sad story. Help us to learn from it, Lord. Above all else, may we see Your grace and mercy put on display here. May we see that You are faithful to Your covenant promises, despite our sin May we be found standing upon you, for you are our rock. You are the unchanging one, the one who keeps his promises, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We confess that you are powerful and strong and able to keep your promises. 
Father, also help us not to repeat the sins of our spiritual forefathers, but to walk in the right way. Father, make us mindful of both sins of omission and commission. Lord, show us where we have done that which is wrong, but also show us where we are falling short, Lord. Father, we pray for your help so that we might give you glory, honor, and praise as we live in this world and so that we might taste that which is good. We pray it all in Christ's name and all of God's people say, Amen.